It's the TFC Audio Project. Hello, wonderful beings of the TFC community. Ruth and Nick here uh, for our first episode of the Ruth, Ruth and Nick podcast. And, you know, this has been something we've been chatting about for a little while. So I think we'll, inter- because this is episode number one, we'll introduce ourselves first and uh, then we'll dive into some questions that Ruth uh, is going to ask me because I, I was telling Ruth, I don't get interviewed very frequently and Ruth and I work together on a weekly basis through the Footner program and she asks great questions. And so I think this can be a good way for um, someone to sort of extract stuff out of my brain, which might not usually get taken out uh, in other podcasts. So um, thanks everyone for watching and maybe I'll uh, let Ruth introduce herself and then uh, I can give a brief intro and then we'll just dive right in. Okay. Well, my name is Ruth O'Donnell and I have the luxury of working with uh, Nick on a weekly and fairly daily basis and the Foot Nerd program. And I am also, um, I'm also working with the Foot Nerd program very intimately with all the nerds and uh, on a daily basis as well. And my background, um, how I found the Foot Nerd program is through the digital seminar. I, despite my background in kinesiology, I had foot, knee, back and ankle pain. And I never even considered taking my shoes off to, to look at what was happening there. So I took the, the uh, digital seminar with Mike and Nick and my life changed. I started to get out of my shoes. I started to get, I got on that beam and the beam changed my life. And so, so much of my knee pain is now completely gone um, that I decided to join the foot nerd program and as a student. And when I did that, I was so enthralled with the material that I got in touch and I started to, uh, when they asked for like a class rep role, I just started like every day. I was like, I'm going to participate and volunteer for every (laughs) single thing I can do because, and I thought that I was competing with a whole bunch of people for, for, to do, to do these things. And I just got involved very quickly and immersed myself and then it, and then never looked back. And then Nick would personally uh, respond on an email. And then, and then I just kept going and going until finally, I think they were like, who's this lady that keeps showing up? Let's see if she needs some work. (laughs) You're very persistent. I think, uh, so, I mean, Ruth is the program director for the Footner program. So she's like the tribe, we call it the tribe mama. And she's basically is, she is the one who comes up with all the greatest ideas that we've implemented to really make this program a lot better this year. Um, She won't say that, but, but I'll say it. Um, And I think it's a prime example of, of the meritocracy aspect of the Footner program, where it's like people who just come forward and engage and want to be part of this or want to do more are just like given the opportunities because those are the people who clearly deserve them the most. Um, and so, yeah, Ruth has been uh, a treat to work with. I work with a lot of people uh, in terms of like having weekly conversations, but I don't work with very many people like really deeply. Um, most because I just prefer to work alone. I get more done, but, uh, but Ruth, you've been an awesome to work with. And it's like, I don't know, just certain things like, uh, our phone calls. I'm, oh, I'm usually always the one on a phone call that says, all right, let's, uh, I'll talk to you next week. But like you beat me to it. I'm like, shit, I like that. Cause we make it really, really tight, really concise. We don't talk about anything that doesn't need to be talked about, but we still shoot the shit and make bad jokes. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's a treat. So thank you for being part of this. And, uh, 
for being, you know, a major element in, in this program. So, yeah. Well, so let's turn the tables a little bit, Nikki Pop. Sure. I'm down. <laughs> so, okay. So um, I would like you to introduce yourself, but not like from a, so one of the things that I realize is that I, I like to know who I'm working with and I am, I'm also a very nosy person, but you talk a lot about like the why of what we're doing. And so I, I tend to be curious, like we do, we do have the material now and all of those wonderful podcasts that you've created, however many hundreds of them there are. And so, and, but I always want to get into the nitty gritty and I have to tell you this right now because sure. I haven't, I haven't told you this yet. So Matthew, who is my partner and my spouse, the other night I was, I was saying, um, <laughs> who would you want to have at dinner? You know, we had the, that like, who do you, who would you, what famous people would you want to have at dinner or, or fame or people that you don't normally get to, like, I can't invite George Clooney or whatever, but. She can. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't know there was, <laughs> there didn't sound like there was any constraints on this until you just said No. That. Okay. So we, the constraint was that they have to be alive. Okay. Is George okay. Clooney dead? No, no, he's not dead. Oh, okay. But I was just thinking George, you're about. George, invited if you're listening to this. George can come. George can come. We'll, we'll make you something delicious and then we'll chat. Anyway, Matthew gave me his. I won't share them because I'll let him share them with you. But mine were uh, Joe Dispenza, Eileen McCusick, and Nick St. Louis. Wow. I'm and honored. Part, <laughs> yes. But I will tell you, I mean, it's not that you're not amazing because you are, but it's because we've never met in person. And because um, I love the, the, I love the idea that we create uh, a playfulness around our work. And mm. so that's what I want to ask you about. Will you introduce yourself? Um, and I want you to talk about the intentional, meaningful rituals that we've discussed and creating a life of meaning. Mm. Yeah. Um, so most people have probably already heard my voice, probably getting tired of it, but uh, I'll just keep going until people tell me to stop. Uh, Nick St. Louis, I live in Ottawa, Canada. Um, I'm a curious human that likes to play and I enjoy studying humans, um, researching and observing. And the, the, the human I spend the most time researching and observing is myself uh, because I, I think it's you know, getting to know why I do the things I do is just as much of a mystery still, uh, less so now, but still very much so um, as trying to guess that about anyone else. And I think by understanding myself, I've started to understand why other people do things that they do, uh, you know, starting with my family, but also friends and strangers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you're going to do something with your time, you may as well find something that you find meaning in. Right. I, and I think earning money to pay for the things you need to pay for is, is a pretty weak meaning. Right. Um, I think we're, I think society tells us that we need to get a job and we just need to do it and suck it up, even if we don't like it, because we need to make money and play the society game. And I think a lot of times that game is very, um, or that description rather is flawed in a big way. And you know, to challenge that. I was sort of like, you know, I was a physical therapist. I liked what I did. I ran a clinic with a really good friend of mine, Mike, who uh, most people will have heard on podcasts. And, um, you know, I enjoyed what I did, but I, it wasn't deeply meaningful to help people like, you know, um, get rid of their shoulder pain symptoms. Like it really just wasn't there. It felt like there was so much more that I could 
pour my heart into than just helping one person at a time with one small issue at a time. And, you know, you, it's, people aren't coming in to get mental health advice. People aren't coming in to get advice on what they put in their bodies when they eat. And yet those things are very much affecting the reason they're coming in to see me. So um, I kind of had to shed that, you know, the label of physical therapist and TFC has sort of allowed me to pursue whatever interests I have in the realm of health um, and just sort of share what I'm learning, right? Like I, I really, last year in Costa Rica, we did a retreat and this whole notion of sharing instead of teaching came up. And like, I've carried that since because it really resonated with me because really what we're doing when we're teaching is actually just sharing our experience, right? We may have spent more time learning about something. Therefore we might have a deeper experience to share. Um, but the whole notion of sharing sort of insinuates that you're not claiming to know all the secrets. You just know what you know right now. And it's like by sharing that you can get perspectives from other people to then add to this sort of like, you know, bowl of data that you can then tease out meaning or, or um, truth from. So yeah, I've just found that like connecting with like-minded people and working on scalable solutions to the health problem that we have right now um, gave me a, a really deep sense of meaning um, to the point where like even the hard stuff is doable and um, carries meaning because it's what allows me to do the more fun stuff, which is, mm-hmm. um, you know, playing every day and seeing how I can apply the mindset of play to everything I do, um, which some days is hard, but it's, it's been really fun so far. So hopefully that weird convoluted way of answering that question is okay. Yeah. So, so one of the things that we talked about before coming on here was that you created a a document that was 38 pages long about (laughs) Yeah, way too long. No, I mean, I see that it's long, but I want, but, and it took, it took us a while to read it. Those of us that have read it, but there were so many nuggets about who you are as like a human and why you do what you do that you don't really talk about regularly on the podcast because I think they're tender. I think they're like, I think they're tender things that we talk about. Like you talk about your mom, you talk about your brother Mm -hmm. and you talk about, um, things in what we what you and I like to call your chiefy green which is like whenever whenever we write notes back and forth and we're trying to get our work done uh Nick will write in green and we call it his chiefy green (laughs) um so he also in his debrief I like to call it the chief debrief case which is filled with like imagine 38 pages that you're combing through but every single paragraph is like a nugget of things of ideas that I think people would love to know about you if they didn't have the time to read the 38 page document. So I guess some of my questions are a little bit more personal in nature than what you would normally share on a, on a podcast where we're just talking about health, although it is all health related. (laughs) So one of the things that we talked about was like when we create um, meaning intentionally in our lives, it's like we personally have to create that meaning. And I think one of the things that we, I think I could probably speak on behalf of most of the foot nerds and the community at large. I think one of the things that's so attractive about the foot collective and the foot nerd program is that every single day in the work that you produce, there is a, a, a feeling that you have number one, done your own experimentation, that you've reflected on what you've done, and then you have gotten clear about what happens next. And I think that is such an incredibly attractive and clarifying thing about what we're doing in the Foot Nerd program in the Foot Collective. And we talked about like how 
I think it's a very natural and human thing to look for like external cues about what is a meaningful life and mm. how um, I think we've even discussed it a little bit about like how you have to create that meaning for yourself. And I think that seems to be like what you keep unpacking over and over again is that we're not going to tell people what to do with their health. We're going to share our experience and help uh, provide like a template or a format so that people can do their own health experiments and come to be the person that they want to feel like they see in, in their external life mm -hmm. or they ad admire other people or, and such. And so that intentional, uh, those little rituals, those daily rituals, like your walk and how those uh, tiny little things build into this like really great daily life and a life of health over time. So maybe you could just give us like, I, we know that you walk and we know that you have lead a structured life, but what are some of the, what's another like ritual that you do that you wouldn't normally share with like the yes. public at large? <clears throat> I got a lot of rituals. It depends how you define ritual, right? This yeah. thing that you've uh, intentionally crafted into your life, which signifies either um, a moment in your day or a behavior or um, something that you cherish. Um, and so like, yeah, I got like mini rituals scattered all over my life now. Um, you know, rituals before meals. Um, and let's be real. Some people will call them habits. Um, I call them rituals because I think that carries more meaning to it than just, mm -hmm. cause really habits are just behaviors you do that are solutions to problems to repeated problems you face. Right. So they develop mm -hmm. into a habit that gets put on autopilot. So you can focus on other stuff. And I think the difference between a habit and a ritual is a habit is being done on autopilot. A ritual is being intentionally and mindfully done in the present moment. And so, you know, I got a bunch of weird, funky rituals. I mean, when uh, one of the new ones that I have, so I started playing the indigenous, uh, the North American indigenous flute and I brought it to Costa Rica, played every day. And I'm really loving it because it's like, I don't have to read music or learn like all the notes. You just like blow into this tube of wood and, and move your fingers in weird ways and it makes cool sounds. Yeah. So one thing I've started to do is um, while I'm making coffee, it takes about five minutes to make coffee. I got this machine and it takes around five minutes. So I play the flute every morning for five minutes while the coffee's going. And I keep my fingers on the flute and I use my big toe to push the buttons on the coffee machine. Awesome. <laughs> so like that, awesome. that makes coffee a, a totally different experience for me, right? Because part of making the coffee is like doing this weird, funky physical challenge where I'm trying to use a different toe to push, because you have to push it like three or four times. Um, <laughs> and so this weird shit like that, that is, it, it's fun. It makes my life funner. I like, I don't, I like making coffee because I like the taste of coffee, but I like the act of making coffee, which I've created meaning in by plugging yeah. in these weird things that resonate with me. Um, and then before I take a sip of coffee, I take five deep breaths and I say, you know, I used to say three things I'm grateful for, but now I just like, it seems like I go for a minute or two and just keep listing things off. The more I hear, you know, we went to Costa Rica or I went to Costa Rica in January and there was a, an indigenous elder there that ran some ceremonies and, um, you know, as part of some of these ceremonies, he would basically say, we're, we're going to take the next two minutes and we're all just going to pray out loud um, before I throw some cedar in the fire before we open up the ceremony. And I remember the first ceremony I did, I was, I said like four things and I was like, I ran out of things. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> and I was like, shit. So I started listening to Quatley and what he was saying. And he was like, 
even things like, you know, may everyone in this circle be blessed and their children be blessed and their grandparents be blessed. You know, may the stars and the planets and the sun, like he just listed off so many things that are in our world mm -hmm. that you would never usually think of. So I find myself now just like riffing off, off of things that I heard other people say, because they created a template for this expanded perspective of things that yeah. can be Right. It's not just like my health and clean water and clean air and coffee and the cinnamon I put on top of my coffee. It's like the universe has so much shit in it. So, yeah. it's like, um, so that's one. Thing, but yeah, there's lots of rituals. And the universe is like, you think cinnamon is great. Yeah. yeah. What about what about the sun? It's like cinnamon goes away. You're still here. Sun goes away. Game over. Yeah. So. so we live in this, we, we, as many people know, we live in this condo complex that has 87 units. And, um, and, and we've been, one of our rituals is that we usually, despite whatever weather it is, we take our food, our meals outside and sit on the uh, front porch on the stoop, which overlooks a parking lot for the most part. That's awesome. And um, we eat out there and we, but, but we don't just, we, we feast, Nick, we, we take the, we take big old you've seen those big wooden platters that we <laughs> yeah. so every night we take like these wooden um cutting blocks with like all of our food piled up and maybe it wooden surfboards yep and we take it out there and we and then i've been trying to practice because you and stephanie Lockmuller, she's a foot nerd she and jason guyette had this challenge uh, where they would like do open the doors with their feet and try to nice. do all kinds of things so I got inspired by that. And now, um, and we always keep our, we're like probably two out of the 87 units who actually open our curtains. Hmm. So, and it's, they're open all the time. So like, you can see, like, if our neighbors look, they could see me trying to hold the platter up and open the <laughs> um, door with my feet. So I think those are, though, I think that those are like fun things that we do that we, that are, I mean, habitual kind of implies that it's almost mindless, that it mm. becomes remote. And then a ritual is that like, it comes more from like a, a heartfelt paying attention to, right? So yeah. that you're not just doing it from your head. Right, exactly. You're not doing it from like route behavior. You're like, yeah. you've specifically designed this thing, which is not actually the easiest way of doing things, right? Like you could just open the door with your hands, but it's not as fun. Um, and okay. so it's like, I think part of a ritual is just like intentional, um, it requires presence, mm -hmm. carries meaning that goes deeper than just achieving a means to an end. So mm -hmm. yeah, Jeff Shub was the guy that got me onto rituals and this whole notion of a ritual, you know, like before that, I think I thought of rituals as like, oh, something religious associated with religion or something mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of people have rituals that are, that are, or just disguised as habits, right? Like I always ask people like, what's your um, pre-bedtime routine? And they're like, oh, I don't have one. I was like, you want to bet? Let's go through what you do. Yeah, yeah. You can't even think of what you do, write it down one day. And guess what? You'll probably realize you do the same shit every time. So mm -hmm. it is a, you do have a routine. You're mm -hmm. just not even aware that the routine is there. It's just like when we wake up, most people's wake up routine is literally check their phone. They might not realize that that's their routine, but that's what just happens. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think the intentional design of routines and rituals and behaviors during the day that are aligned with the type of life you want to lead or the type of person you want to be requires a lot of effort. Yeah. And 
um, don't get me wrong. I did like this didn't, I don't just pack my life with rituals in one day. Like this is a growing process of kind of like, you know, adopting some, seeing how they serve me, seeing how I like them, ditching some, putting new ones in. And I think if people just were more present and mindful of what they do, um, they could easily design in these habits or or not. Yeah. Habits or rituals that, that kind of bring them to where they want to go. Instead of struggling to get there, you can just get there by doing a couple of small decisions and paying attention. And I think there's something very powerful about that. Yeah, for sure. Creating a life of meaning requires something that's very like internal and habitual, but also, I mean, I think my point about the, uh, why I was moved by that, about creating rituals and meaning is that um, it's so important now in our lives because we can't, we don't get to see each other face to face in person. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't, we're not, I mean, for me personally, I, I feel deprived of hugs. I mean, I'm such a tactile, I'm such a tactile person that I just am like, I, I, I mean, and Matthew can only hug me so much. He's like, dude, <laughs> dude, I'm out of hugs today. I'm out. To I'm out. I need some space. Um, yeah. but, but I think that <clears throat> what, what that has taught me how to grow is that I have to create that feeling for myself. So I think I've told you now I have like, I've invested in like the softest blankets and sweaters that feel like a hug, but that I have like these, the, this meaning. So creating meaning for our own personal selves, like nobody, literally nobody else can do any of that for us. Right. It's like our health, our health protocols too, you know, food, sleep, movement, um, community, I guess community is like how I like thinking about the 70 trillion cells in our bodies about um, the community that you're mm. caring for. Ooh, that like that's that. like, yeah, that that's like the nation, right? Like that each mm. cell is your little mini me. And you're like, Oh, how can I, how can I create rituals for that? Yeah. You're community. like the caretaker of Ruth O'Donnell nation, which is huge. Yeah. So many. cells. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. You bring up the hug thing. Cause like, I do really long hugs when I hug people and so many people are thrown off, but everyone loves it. Everyone loves it. Everyone's yeah. like, Oh my goodness. I haven't had a hug. I haven't had a hug like this in a while. I'm like, yeah, start doing this. Cause I didn't used to do this, but now I do. It's great. And yeah. I also feel like there's a point where people in my family were like, Oh, there's these weighted blankets out there. They're so good. I don't know what it is. I'm like, you need more hugs. That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> yes. It's so true. It is so true. Well, that like that, 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 parasympathetic nervous response when you get the you know and it takes a minute to settle in like I find that sometimes people will resist you know like they mm-hmm. and then they settle in I'm not trying to hold anybody captive or anything but <laughs> yeah you can't be going out there giving unwarranted hugs and not releasing that's it won't go over well. <laughs> no no but I come from a family of people who hugged and my mama is like when she hugs she's like she you, you get in there and you're you know and so we don't have that. So we have to cre- create more meaning for ourselves. It's funny because sometimes I, like, I remember a guy that I worked with when I was doing um, a physio fellowship for a hockey team was like this shorter guy. Shout out to Doug Stacy if you're listening to this. Like I was like, that guy led me down a different path in my life. He was just so cool and so awesome and like taught me that what you learn in school doesn't mean shit here. It's like what actually works. Um, so he both taught me a lot and also mm-hmm. was a contributing factor to me failing my first national exam because I did what works and not what they wanted on the sheet of paper. Um, but it's okay. I'm happy for it. <laughs> but one thing he would do is give hugs to some of the players and like give them an adjustment. 
So I started giving these what I call hug adjustments. And then as soon as I gave a few, people are like, hey, can I have a hug adjustment? Like, <laughs> you really need an adjustment. You just asked me for a hug. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. code. It's yeah. code. <clears throat> yeah, um, exactly. that, re that reminds me of um, my friends who trained for the Boston Marathon. It was their, or they were training for the Boston Marathon, but they were a lead up half marathon that they were training for. They trained, they trained, they trained. And then at the very, you know, cause that's, that's major, like, that's like a major social thing, right? That you're mm. training and people are like on board the day of it was snowing or something in Boston. And they decided to ditch the marathon and they went home and drank hot chocolate with peppermint schnapps in there. It's <laughs> the whole thing. I was like, I was, I was blown away. I was like, you cannot do that. That is against the rules. You got to go do that marathon. You would, you cannot tell anyone about this. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I just, so I won't say who it is, but they nice. know, they, they know. know. Yeah. Um, Better have been some freaking good hot chocolate. It, I think it was. And that, <laughs> that led down, that led down a whole bunch of like, we're going to do, we're going to train for these things, these like socially, I mean, we kind of police each other and not in a bad way, but we, we hold each other accountable for trying to do these like really hard things, despite like our body saying, I don't want to do that. Right. And that led to us down a whole path. I started EMT school and I was living with my two friends, the same two friends. Um, and I, we had just started living a year together in this big house and I was, I was involved in the studies and I had to choose. And I was like, my friends, EMT school, my friends. And I went to a couple classes and I was so jealous that my friends were at home, like cooking and living and that I just, I, I, I dropped out and I went and I lived the best, one of the best years Amazing. with my two friends who are now, you know, since married and have kids. And we just had that one year together. And I don't think it would have gone the same had I not had that instinct to kind of go against those pressures of, hmm. of, um, of that. Anyway, that was a, a little bit of a, a rant, but can we go back to you? This still tie directly into a willingness to live a unique life, mm -hmm. which was one of your <clears throat> topics in your debrief was that you wrote a paragraph about what it means to be willing to live a unique life. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah. Um, my life is very unconventional. Um, what, when people ask me what I do for work, I often don't know what to say. I say different things to gauge their reaction. Um, and even just like some of the shit I do, like when I walk around barefoot in the snow, my neighbors think I'm like, like, should we be calling the mental health services? We, <laughs> you know, like, it's, I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> ask me about it if you're curious. Um, but I think there's like, and even like in airports, right? Like I walk around barefoot in airports and that's not, I think most people wouldn't do that. Not because they're afraid their feet are going to fall off, but because they're afraid of how many people are going to judge them and what they're going to look like. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I think there's this like deeply human feature in our brains and our wiring to, to, to care about what other people think of us. Because if, ever, if you lived in a tribe of 150 people and everyone hated you, you're probably going to die. You're probably going to get alienated from the tribe. No one's going to give you food. No one's going to take care of your kids. Like it's good to, to want people to think good of you. And I think some of the issue is the, the, the notion of good and bad, right? Like people will think badly of me if I don't wear shoes. Mm -hmm. um, but that's you basically deciding that that's what they're going to think. So you're, you're making up what you think other people will think about you. And it's like, that's such a weird mind game that we play. So 
when you release <clears throat> the desire to appease people's, uh, when you release the desire to get approval from other people really is what it is. Mm -hmm. And you just learn that, you know, not, it's not really about not caring what other people think, but just realizing that a lot of people don't care about you. Like a lot of people, people at an airport don't give a shit about you. They're not thinking about you. They're not making you the topic of conversation with their family. Like they're not noticing what you think everyone's noticing. Mm -hmm. And once you realize that you're like, well, I just have the freedom to live whatever way I want, right. To try things, to do things that are like really, I guess, socially weird, but feel right to me based on what my values are. So it takes a little bit of courage to live you know, I call it OG life and original life where it's like, it's your life. It's not, you're not trying to live someone else's life. You're not trying to live the life that's given to you on a platter by society saying like, this is what humans do in this world. Um, and the funny thing is, is that ends up being a signal to the other people living an OG life to start conversations with them. Like I have great conversations at airports when I walk around barefoot. Cause like other quote unquote, strange people are like, Hey, what's up? Why are you wearing shoes? It's like, oh. <laughs> I just self-selected for the coolest person in this airport. This is great. <laughs> so, so I, but I think a lot of it boils down to just not caring as much about what other people think uh, about things that really don't matter, right? Like if you're an asshole um, and people don't like you, then that's probably not good. But like, if you're a nice person, you say hi to people, but you just happen to not be wearing shoes. I don't think people are going to think poorly of you and whatever they think, who, the, who cares? Let them think what they want. Um, the curious ones ask you questions, then it's an opportunity to have a conversation about foot health. That's the way I see it. Plus my feet feel better. So it's like, yeah, yeah. I, I was just having this conversation recently about how I'm not one of the ones who is, uh, I've not been like, like so many foot nerds I have conversations with have a, this similar thread. Like I was not afraid to be different. And I'm like, I was totally afraid to be different. <laughs> I was too for most of my life. And I still am like, I, I get a little bit sweaty, Nick, thinking about the barefoot in the airport. Thing. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta give myself a little rub here because, but the thing about like not being alone that when I go to the airport, I'm like, should I take off my shoes? I can't bring myself to do it, but I can bring myself to sit on the ground, which I wasn't able to do before. There you go. I, I can bring myself, um, Matthew and I both now, we move. Like even just right now, I'm in the library in a conference room where I've moved the tables around and I have to kind of just, you know, move because nice. I get nervous and I get excited to talk. And I was taught in school to sit still. Like if you're fidgety, you got marked down on your report card, right? Mm. But, but when you are part of a community like this, like the Foot Nerd Program, and people like you who are uh, leaders in our field in certain ways um, and sharing this experience, I can now, and Matthew, like we, we move. I actually went upside down and stood my hand, uh, you know, stood upside down. And I try not to care about what people think because I care more about how I feel. And I've been in places before where like, I will sit still because that's what everybody's doing. Like, especially in, in France in certain music halls, you're not supposed to you're supposed to go and sit and listen to the music. I went to a Tracy Chapman concert. I was like in the third row, Nick. Nice. Love Tracy Chapman. <clears throat> yeah. Sub four, nobody was freaking moving. <laughs> and uh, finally, at one point, it overcame me. And I was like, you go, sister. <laughs> and she That's was awesome. just, I couldn't help myself. I was like, this is crazy. But at that moment, I remember, because I love to dance, I remember thinking, the next time I feel the impulse to dance, I'm not going to hold back. So I don't. Awesome. And um, 
And I think not everyone has to go barefoot in airports to live an original life. Like, I don't want that to be like, you don't have to do the wacky things. It's just, if you're, if you want to, you can. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes what happens is like me going barefoot in an airport might be the permission someone gets to be like, oh, that's the end of the continuum. Well, I can wear no shoes in the office and it's way more acceptable now. You know, like maybe you give people permission to recalibrate where what they thought was really weird is now no longer. Now it's like, it's only a little bit weird because that dude was shoeless in a freaking airport. It's like, if I can recalibrate people's weird caliber, then that might be good too. Well, it recalibrated mine because now I, I move in different ways. I don't sit in the chairs. I don't follow the same guidelines, social accepted guidelines. So um, it's really yeah. funny how many people, if you're radically observant of people around you in a busy space, you're doing something very different um, and you're not afraid of people judging you, you just want to see like, what are, I wonder what that person's thinking when they're seeing me do this. And it's funny how many people I've seen like slide out of their chair at the airport and just like go on the ground or go on a squat. It's like, they're doing that because they saw me on the ground. Exactly. It's funny how many people we affect without really realizing it, right? Like anyone that sees you do a behavior that is outside of the social norm gives them some new input that they didn't have before. They might not use it, but it's allowing them to see something different. And I think this whole notion of health being a novelty search or like a playful life being really just a quest to do different things, to try different things. When people show you things that are different that you didn't even know existed, it broadens your spectrum of things you can choose from. And I think there's something that's what makes me feel good about doing things that are weird and not really caring. It's like, maybe if I can affect one person positively with them observing me doing this and knowing that like, Oh, gee, you can walk down the street, barefoot on a sidewalk like you're not mm-hmm. like that guy's not afraid that he's, his feet are going to fall off because 18 needles are going to stab him it's like oh i didn't know that you know so it's like maybe it can help people just have a, a broader perspective of what's actually dangerous and what's not yeah and a, din- a good dinner conversation because probably that person gets gets to where they're going they're like i saw a guy in the airport right. not wearing shoes and then another person's like oh i'm i'm trying out this new barefoot lifestyle and you know so it brings it it, it, it does it adds uh, color and richness and possibility. Hopefully. Okay. Can we go on? Yes, we can. Okay. So the next one, um, well, I'm trying to decide about, okay, so we're going to go to health equals self-respect. Mm, I like that one. Yeah. So that was a great paragraph because, um, Holy smokes, it's 12.45 already. These people are fast. We'll just just keep rolling. And whenever we reach a good point, that seems like a good stop point. Like to everyone listening, if you enjoy these, comment on the YouTube. Um, We're just going to keep doing them because me and Ruth love talking to each other. We may as well share it because some of these conversations are pretty colorful. um, and he and Nick always says that like because um, at first I was like twenty minutes max and then he's like wait <laughs> wait till you start doing this and right. unpacking and I, I just noticed like whoa okay so health equals self respect <clears throat> the thing that got me in that paragraph is you talked about what that means but then the last sentence is a pretty potent one which is um, you have to feel worthy mm. so I like you to unpack that a little bit. Mm, that's a big one yeah so so I, I maybe i probably should have given this context at the start but the chief debrief was something i did to round out the t- year of 2020 and was mostly stimulated by the fact that <clears throat> i had a big time lack of clarity with what tfc was going to do in 2021 because there was so much stuff going on so many different projects in different directions at different stages 
Um, and I kind of realized like I need to get radical clarity or else I'm just going to be anxious, right? I'm just going to have this low level anxiety of not knowing what the heck we're doing. And if someone asks like, well, what's TFC up to? And I'm like, oh shit, where do I, I got to choose from these 50 things. I'm like, that, that shouldn't happen. So that's why it's 38 freaking pages. Um, but it was basically an exercise where I took a, uh, my first monk week where it was basically like live like a monk and not like put a robe on and like sit on a cliff. It was just like be in solitude <clears throat> with my own thoughts, with some books and a notebook and get, get radical clarity on what the heck we should be doing next year. So that, um, and, and also just write it as a forced meditation to myself, but also knowing that there's so many people in TFC that are so awesome that would probably want to contribute to some of these projects. And they might not even know most of these, they might not even be realized that most of these projects exist um, because a lot of them are still in kind of their infancy stage. Some don't even get beyond that point. So I was like, all right, I'm going to put it all in writing. Anyone who wants to read it can. And this will be a really good way for me to get clear. And this will also be the longest one that the debriefs will ever be because I should never be this confused, not confused, but this messy in, in my brain and with TFC. Um, <clears throat> so it gave me, I spent a lot of time in the forest, that forest one. And it gave me a lot of time to just like think of whatever came into my mind or whatever idea or thought I had. And I listened to one podcast a day because I think podcasts are like, uh, I, heard, I think I heard James Clear make this analogy. <clears throat> when you consume knowledge, it's like putting fuel in your car. If you just load your car up with fuel, but don't go anywhere, then the car is useless. Mm -hmm. But if you use fuel to get in your car and then do something or create something, um, then there's a good balance there. Whereas if you never take in any content from other people to expand your perspective, your car is going to run out of fuel. You're not gonna be able to create anything. So a lot of my creation or, you know, whether it's check-ins or safety co chapters is really based on work that I've listened to from other people. And I, probably someone mentioned the fact that health is a form of self-respect or something along that line. And it really, really made me realize that, you know, and, and another point <clears throat> recently that I, I talked about with Jeff also was that how you treat yourself is sort of the baseline metric for how you treat others. So if you treat yourself like people who treat themselves like shit, often treat other people like shit, people who treat themselves well, often treat other people well. Uh, whether that's a stranger or family or partner or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that taking care of yourself is the ultimate form of self-respect, right? Like, and, and even like, what is respect? Respect is this, you know, positive feeling or, or action towards someone um, that's considered important, let's say, right? So it's this positive thing uh, shown to someone you feel is important. If you feel you are important, if you feel that you are like of value to people in this world, that you are important, then showing yourself the best way to show yourself respect, is to take care of yourself. Because if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others. Uh, you're often not able to contribute as positively or as meaningfully in society, whether it's your work or your family. So, yeah, I think if to show yourself respect means to take care of yourself and to take care of yourself, you have to have an awareness, basic awareness of health. Because really taking care of yourself is really just health. That's really what it is, right? Eating, um, nourishing food, getting good quality sleep, moving during the day, basically just making sure all of your basic essential needs are met mm -hmm. to prime you to be able to then go into the world with positive energy to then maybe give some of that to other people or help other people figure that out as well. So yeah, that's kind of where, where that came from. And now that I kind of think about it, that resonates with me even more. Yeah, and I think that part about 
like I think we've we've brought this up maybe before and have talked about it in Slack where like um, feeling worthy, like what what comes first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing? Like, mm. do you do you like feeling that you are a person on the planet that gets to take space, that gets to that that the body is designed to be something that feels great? And that by, by getting good quality food and sleep and community and whatever those pillars mean to you individually, that, that, that then adds like this little feeling of like, um, okay, so I'm just going to give a raw alert. So I remembered, I mean, I've always been pretty good about like being a person who I told you that I've, I've always wanted to blend in. I'm not the person who wants to be different. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there was at some point, at one point in my life where I didn't actually feel very happy or very good, but I put on a pretty brave face most of the time so that I could mm -hmm. like just be in the world. And it wasn't until I didn't understand what that means about like, what do people mean when they like feel worthy or self love? Like, I don't get the, I don't get the language of like self love. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I, when I did start to not, when I did to start to actually have the recognition that I didn't feel very good, like emotionally, or there was some part of me that wasn't like, that just wasn't like connected or on a daily basis to, I would go through also a pretty good actress. So I'd go through my relationships and have fun and do all the things, but like deep down, I wasn't like, uh, satisfied. And then when I listen to some good teachers say, well, like a full night's sleep, like, what does that feel like? And that is a form of self-care. So when the, when the word changed to self-care, I was like, okay, well, so, oh, somebody said like, treat yourself like a child. I think you brought that up in your uh, debrief, like how you want to stay a kid. We also want to take care of ourselves. Like you would take care of a child, like your body mm -hmm. is like a, a child. So some, one of my teachers said, pretend that you are a small child. And that anything that you say to the child or that you would, you got to, you have to care for your adult body the same way that you would care for a child that you were responsible for. Mm. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so, okay. Well, that child needs a hug, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and the child needs a good night's sleep and a, and a routine that where they can feel safe. And then safety came in and I was like, oh, I don't actually feel safe in the world to be, to live a unique life. Mm. But if I gave myself a full night's rest and I maybe was well fed and I wasn't eating as much junk food or I wasn't drinking as much alcohol or doing certain things that were not making me feel as great, little by little, those um, little things built on themselves. And I was like, oh, this is what feeling worthy means that like my body, I can take care of my body in a way that I feel like I, I get to belong. Mm. You know, I, I feel like I can belong because I would always go around admiring other people for being able to do awesome things, but not able to actually create those habits and rituals in my own life. Now, um, so I, I feel like that, there's a, there, I think there's a tipping point because it's, I remember having that chicken and the egg conversation in Slack with the nerds where mm -hmm. it's like, well, do you have to feel a sense of self-worth to do the good behaviors or can you just do the sense of behavior that do the mm -hmm. behaviors and that develops into a sense of self-worth? And I don't think there's one, one way that does it, but I think everyone can find a unique way in. And I've had really good luck. Like this is where me, me and Jeff, for example, differ. He says, no, you have to start with people actually digging really deep down into the layers and developing a health identity. And then the behaviors just blossom on their own. And I don't doubt that that can happen, but I think that that's a really hard way of going about it. 
you know, like people have trouble even meditating for five minutes, you're asking them to go in and unpack all the childhood trauma that's led them to where they are. Like, that's a special person that can do that. Mm -hmm. um, Jeff's working towards that. <laughs> no, I'm the opposite end of the camp. I'm like, all right, you may have all this stuff that you've been programmed with. That's okay. Let's talk about one behavior that you think a healthy person does. And let's scale that down so small that you can do step number one. Because when you do enough of these things, you know, you start a habit and then you scale a habit. So you start by like meditating for 30 seconds and then eventually you can scale it up to meditating for half an hour if you want. But you have to start before you scale. People just try and bite off like someone else's scaled version. They're like, oh, that's so freaking hard. It's like, well, yeah, mm -hmm. it took a person a year to get there. Like mm -hmm. you can't be hero in that. Um, but I think there's a tipping point where you start doing enough behaviors of enough behaviors that a person who cares about themselves and feels a sense of self-worth to take care of their bodies would do that. You're like, well, shit, the majority of my behaviors are me taking care of myself. So I guess I'm the kind of person that takes care of myself. So you, <laughs> it's like, fake it till you make it. You just kind of are casting vote. James Clear says it well, every behavior you do is you casting a vote for the type of person you want to become. Eventually the majority of votes end up winning to whatever behaviors you're doing most frequently. Um, and so the limiting step, you know, I look at it as like, you know, it's almost like climbing Mount Everest. Okay. So becoming healthy is, is like climbing Mount Everest. Jeff is trying to find the hidden elevator to get you up there right away. I'm trying to build a stairwell to let people take one step at a time. You can get there both ways. I think the elevator is really hard to find. The steps are easier to build. And if we all build the steps together, we can develop a really good framework for a solid stairwell that we can then say like, here's the stairwell I took. Like, just take the first step. You want me to hold your hand? I'll help you. And yeah. it's like, let, let's go up. And eventually the compound interest of behavior change is such that you get to the top. And yeah. guess what? The secret is there is no top. You just keep going. Exactly. And then also, I think like, like what we've been saying all along is that each individual person with their background and their unique experience comes to has the little eye opening or that little key unlocking that happens uniquely to them. So mm, yep. whatever, so, so whatever it is that, that you get that moment, it's just like a physical practice where when I was, when I'm working on like a handstand, it's like something unlocks in my shoulder and I'm like, Oh my God, I have something happening that's working now. And then little by little keys get unlocked so that the whole, mm -hmm. the whole picture comes together in an organic way. And I think it's the same with what you're talking about. And that piece is different for every person that, right. that leads to the next puzzle piece fitting, yeah. And only comes through self-discovery. No one can give you that key, exactly. right? They can help you find the right direction. They can be like, yeah, the key's somewhere in that area. Like, go, go find it. But they yeah. can't say like, here's the key. And anyone who pretends to give you the key, be skeptical because like, oftentimes it's not the right key. That's right. I love that. That was, we'll, we'll talk about that in a, another one because there's so much that I want to talk about. And I think that I want to, I, I was wanted to, one last subject, um, maybe before we wrap up, which would be like science literacy. I want to, I wanted to talk about science yeah. literacy, um, reviving the spirit of science. I can't tell you how much I love the idea of this. I like the idea of a revival. And I love the idea of science literacy and um, being ruthless about not fooling ourselves as a definition yeah. of science, um, which actually I was thinking just means being human. You know, like if you uh, could fooling be, ourselves as being human. Well, if you allow yourself to be fully human, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is just me. I feel like I've have been, I've known that for a long time that I don't know 
shit about anything. Me too. It's great. It's but liberating then, to just admit you don't know shit. <laughs> it is. But then the, your whole life is spent like putting on like this armor of knowledge where like you're, you're supposed to know something. Second. All right. And we're back. Little internet glitch. All good. Okay. So science literacy, I'll just go back just in case. Science literacy being ruthless about not fooling ourselves. And I was talking about, I remembered that we were talking about it being liberating, recognizing that you don't know shit about anything. Yep. But we spend, but in, but what I've noticed is that I spent my whole adult life since I was like 18 years old following the pack so that I wouldn't stick out like a sore thumb, creating armor of knowledge. Mm to hide behind so that you could um, be like a legitimate, I don't know, it's, for women, I think it's a different too, maybe, where you're like professional or like, if I just dance around and stand on my hands all the time, nobody's gonna take me seriously as like a professional mm. human or whatever. Right. So I guess, um, I guess my opinion is like, when you adopt this idea of science being, um, being so ruthless that you're not fooling yourself. It's like, you get to uncover the fact that you are just a human who doesn't know shit about anything. And that is liberating. Mm. Did, you, did that make sense? <laughs> yeah, that made sense. I think it's, I think it's deeply human to be really good at fooling ourselves. Like I catch myself fooling myself all the time, mm -hmm. all the time. I think we're the easiest ones to fool ourselves because we know ourselves better than anyone else. Therefore we know how to fool ourselves better than anyone else. And Science gives us this beautiful tool to use to avoid fooling ourselves. And if we all are given this tool, well, I'm really good at fooling myself, but you're not as good at fooling me. Or you can see that I'm fooling myself where I might not be able to see that. So you can use science to help me not fool myself because I'm stuck in my perspective. But if I'm open to the method of science, then that can help me not fool myself. And like, I heard this from... Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson in a masterclass that I watched of his and you know until then the scientific method held a different definition for me and when he said that science is doing everything in your power by any means necessary to avoid yourself I was like shit that's a really good definition I'm taking that forever because he's like it's doing everything you can to not believe something that isn't true or to believe something that isn't true and it's like wow so in that context, science is not a tool to prove things right or to prove things or to, to prove truth. It's a tool there to prove things wrong. And that was a really big realization for me because I think a lot of society is using science as a, as a cop-out to say, this is true because of science mm -hmm. or saying that like a research paper, this is science mm -hmm. or an expert says something. This, that's science because so-and-so is a scientist and they said this, so that's mm -hmm. science. And they're missing the whole point that science is a dynamic process of continuously proving ourselves wrong, mm -hmm. right? Really at its core, science is about asking good questions, I think. Exactly. Um, like we're, we should be allowed to ask questions. If people are getting, you know, like if you ask the questions, is COVID-19 dangerous? Are masks effective? Are vaccines safe? Like you just get destroyed by mm -hmm. everyone because mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable to ask the questions that people have essentially adopted as truth. Right. They're like, that's not even up for debate. Science proved that like a while ago. It's mm -hmm. like, well, what do you, what science? It's like, well, what, what are you talking about? Science didn't prove anything right. It doesn't do that. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. let's talk about that. So I think if we democratize science and improve global science literacy of what science is, of like 
tools we can use to avoid fooling ourselves. And if everyone has a common understanding of that and a respect and reverence for the fact that like, okay, it's maybe it's not the best tool, but it's the best one we have right now. So we should probably just all agree to use it until we find a better one. Um, then we solve a lot of the problems that we have right now, which is like this uh, inability for sense-making as a culture, because there's so many messed up agendas playing into adding variables into the equation that makes it so complicated where people are just like, I can't make sense of this. This is yeah. the world's too crazy to make sense of. It's like, well, it's not if you understand science and if we're all on the same team. Um, so yeah, I think if we, you know, having a free course about the basics of science that a 10 year old can understand is mm -hmm. the same course that I think everyone needs. Most of whom are health professionals. Doctors mm -hmm. need to understand science because they wouldn't be doing probably a lot of the things they do if applied science, if they yeah. applied the rule of not fooling themselves. And it's really hard to not fool yourself. This is the other thing too. It requires a lot of work to not fool yourself, right? Mm -hmm. The effort to accumulate data or to hold space with people who have radically different perspectives, like mm -hmm. that's a shitload of effort. Mm -hmm. And the lazy thing is just to accept what some expert says as truth, right? To appeal to authority, to appeal, oh, my professor told me this and I paid a shitload of money to pay, to be told that by the professor. Therefore, my bias is such that that is the truth. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really big problem. So, yeah. yeah. You know, it having a course like you, you discussed in the chief debrief case um, about uh, having a course, a foundations course that a 10 year old could understand. Mm. So I think I kind of faked my way through school and even through my grad program, but I had a fantastic shout out to Dr. LaCourse. By the way, his name is Dr. LaCourse. Isn't that wow. funny? Wow. And, and he taught- I'd love to take a course from Dr. LaCourse. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> so glad I didn't have to explain that to you. <laughs> I'm always like, get it, get it. Um, so Dr. LaCourse taught a fantastic research methods <clears throat> class. And I know it was good because I felt like a 10 year old and I understood. And I remember mm. the one thing from that research methods class was that the application of the science, um, the scientific method was to not come up. And I remember this blew my mind because I was like, what do you mean? Aren't we supposed to be proving, proving this right? you know, we worked in like neuroplasticity and did all these cool experiments. And I was like, but the conclusion is we're right. <laughs> <laughs> right. We love conclusions. <laughs> and the conclusion is these are the five mm. new questions we came up with. Mm. And I was like, it never gets done. It's yeah. a process that's never ending. So you just keep coming up with new questions. And I was like, right. well, at first I was kind of pissed about that. Cause like, I just want to be right. Like I, I just want to <laughs> right. be right. Um, and then, um, and then, and then I got the hang of it, but I love that idea of that. And I've always thought that. So the whole, the whole mountain of scientific information, scientific information that comes to us about any number of things has just always felt a little bit, a lot. I don't, I don't, I take it with a grain of salt. It's just sensationalist um, journalism, you know? So. Yeah. And I think there's another section in a debrief that talks about, is there a section that talks about data versus processing? I don't know if there is. I might've written that somewhere so. else, but we love to rely on data, but what we don't realize is like when data comes in, unless we make sense of that data in a way that's true um, and objective, then our, our conclusion, 
like our conclusions often become useless when we have a hyper focus on data and a lack of focus on processing mm -hmm. because you can you can interpret data in any way you want if you have a basic knowledge of statistics you can choose you can massage data in any way you want and mm -hmm. pretend like it's statistics right like people don't understand statistics neither do i therefore mm -hmm. i'm always skeptical of statistics i'm like how did you get to that what data did you use who got that data for you like is there other data available and so Science has just become this really easy tool to use to manipulate perception of people who aren't willing to do the work to, to really dive into all the stuff themselves. And mm -hmm. in all fairness, everyone is overwhelmed right now, including mm -hmm. me some, most days. Mm -hmm. You can't expect everyone to research everything mm -mm. and make sense of the world independently. Like they're just trying to, they're just struggling to tread water to live their lives, to pay their bills. Mm -hmm. You can't ask them to dedicate like weeks of their lives to understanding a small topic. Mm -hmm. And I think this is partially where the power of the footnote program comes in, where like we are a community of learners. If we can organize effectively, then we can say, okay, there's 150 of us. How about you 10 people? What do you, what do you 10 people like to learn about? Oh, you all like to learn about food? Perfect. Let's get you to research this area of food together and let us know, everyone, all 140 other of us, let us know what you find. Because we all agree by the rules of science. Therefore, I know that the research you're doing is equal to the research I would be doing. And then you 10 people, what do you like to do? And it's like, if we all just take a little nugget of what we're really interested in and research it deeply, uh, we have this container whereby sense-making is, is actually made possible because yeah. we all understand how to find information. And we also all understand that like whatever conclusions you come to today will probably be proven wrong in six months. And that's okay because mm -hmm. being wrong means learning and our hesitance to be wrong is, is a friction and, a, and an obstacle to learning. And I think this is where the more expensive your degree is, the more you feel that you know the stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's really uncomfortable to realize that what you paid to learn is not actually a reflection of reality and, and it's not what you need to know to be effective. And that's, that was uncomfortable for me. And I didn't yeah. even spend that much money on my degrees. Yeah. I can just imagine people in the world of medicine, how, how reluctant they are. And I, I get it, but it's like, when your reluctance to learn is hurting people, there's a bigger argument to be had to like, all right, well, you got to, it's going to sting, but you got to swallow it. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know what? I, I think that like the, the way that we have science now is like, cause humans are so clever. I feel like the science, like science said it, therefore it is, is kind of right. like, it's kind of like your mom was like, because I'm the mom and I said so. Yeah. Because they said so. Don't ask questions. Yeah. That's like the equivalent in, yep. in, in the real world. Of, of that's the, probably what programmed us to accept that like that's probably that was probably where it started now that you yeah. say that my mom would always say because i'm the mom and you're the kid and that's why right and i was like and then you just ask another question yeah well who says moms are allowed to do that yeah mom <laughs> kids ask great <laughs> questions they ask yeah. a great question but i can't answer a question kid asks i feel stupid but i also i'm like that's a freaking great question. I'm going to start asking that. You're like, excuse me, Tommy, let me get back. I'm just going to go do my research. I'll get back yeah. to you on that. Yeah. Oh, I just have to do some adult stuff. What yeah. is this term? <laughs> Why are the stars white? Yeah, um, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> what are stars? Why is the sky blue? Oh my God. I don't know anything. Oh my God. It's been five years since I've seen the stars. Um, okay. So that is a great way to segue into my final exercise for us about because you, we talk a lot about conducting our own personal experiments mm -hmm. my I love this woman Eileen McCusick and she talks about being the citizen scientist which I think is a great term love and that. 
I just, it's like the barefoot doctors in, in, um, um, who like the doctors didn't have enough doctors. I can't remember exactly where, so I'm not even going to say, but they would just train the um, people of the village in the techniques of doctoring. And then they call them barefoot doctors because they were just people going out and helping other people. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to just end with like a quick- Probably fire. wasn't in North America because they would be sued for calling themselves doctors. <laughs> yeah. No, it was somewhere and it was probably a long time ago. Nice, nice. <laughs> um, so citizen scientist is, uh, is my new favorite term and it is the uh, personal conducting of our own health experiments, which is what our foot nerd program is all about. Yep. Like, oh, we didn't really get to unpack steps one, two, and three of health as a process and the path to health. Um, Let's but, save it. We got yeah, we'll save it. Record, so. But knowing health, right, is the step yeah. one. So knowing health, meaning personally, what are the five pillars? So quickly, I thought we would just rapid fire through the five pillars of our own, what we're experimenting with um, in food. So what are you experimenting right now with food, citizen scientist? With food, I'm experimenting with the whole concept of food before fun. So I'm the guy in the grocery store that like picks things up and eats them before I like I scan the wrappers at the cash sometimes it's terrible. <laughs> so I'm like, the rule is food before fun. I have to ha eat food before I eat any fun. And it's not about never eating fun. It's just about delineating, making sure you're not fooling yourself into thinking that fun is actually food. Um, and so food before fun, and I'm actually experimenting with this concept of it's not necessarily the fun stuff that is in and of itself terrible for you, although most of it is shit for you. It's just empty. And so I think a lot of it is neutral if you have a healthy body. Some mm -hmm. of it is just like really bad for you. But it's the bigger thing is the lack of nutrients that you're getting, that you're, you're not getting any nutrients. You're only getting the fun, but you're not getting any nutrients. So my experiment right now is if I get all my nutrients and eat all my food, can I eat some fun and and not feel terrible and not have consequences. And so that's the experiment I'm doing right now. Okay, so my experiment with food right now is that is with intermittent, inter, intermittent fasting. Hmm. Um, about 10 years ago, Matthew and I did a 12 day water only fast. That's a beast. It was awesome. It, we'll, we'll save that for another time, but that was a, a really wonderful experience. But now I'm experimenting with um, eating, uh, my meals from 12 p.m. until 7.30 p.m. and having about 17 hours of mm. fasting in between with the exception of like a cup of coffee, black coffee mm -hmm. and water, and then um, experiencing true hunger. Mm. So true hunger is like a really wonderful thing. And then, and then I can eat uh, a big meal at noon and then we eat again, like at five. And then I don't eat, a, I don't eat until the following day. Cool. How's that going so far? How, are you, how long have you been doing that for? uh let's see probably this is since christmas and i cool. love it nice well i wasn't feeling very well and um and so i didn't feel like eating and then i realized when i started to want to eat again that the reason why i started to feel better is because i had such a long period of fasting in between meals and i was like oh my mm. god i feel clear and nice. so it's been a good experiment cool. how about sleep sleep um well, I've been doing this ongoing experiment for a while, sleeping on the floor on like a little thin tatami mattress. So I thought mm -hmm. I was just going to, I was like, I'm just going to do this once again. Jeffrey said, why don't you try sleeping on the floor? Like he was like, the thing that triggered me, he's like, mattresses are like cushioning and shoes. I'm like, you 
effort. You can't pull that shit on me. Now I have to try this. <laughs> so, so I tried it and I really like it. So I've been doing that. And, um, like one thing I'm experimenting with is I always read before bed, but what I'm realizing is that what I read affects my ability to get to sleep. So I'm, I'm trying to read things that every time I read something because the whole like car fuel analogy thing, it's like everything I read goes through a filter where it's like, how could I share this in a simplified way that could give people value? Um, and often my brain doesn't, if I see something really good that applies to my life and, and sharing health information, I'm like, how do I, you know, slice off all the fat off this and come up with like a good thing to put on Instagram or a good chapter for the saving good. So I've started to not read things that make me go down that route because it's often my brain just keeps thinking of it. <clears throat> so I'm reading things like uh, why Buddhism is true. And there's a book on uh, the practice of shamanism, things that are like more personal to me that don't make me want to think and ruminate on it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, what about you? What's your sleep experiment these days? My sleep experiment these days is uh, no screens in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. So I was, I fooled myself into thinking that if I was listening to a meditation on my phone, mm -hmm. um, that that was like, didn't count as a screen in the bedroom. So I had these little things that I was like, oh, but there's still a screen in the room. So I've taken right. the screen out of the bedroom. The other thing that Georgina, Georgina Davies actually inspired me to do was to um, turn out all the electricity by uh, an hour before I go to bed. Mm. so I've been turning out all electricity an hour before that's a good one and then um and then it turns out that I'm I knock out like I don't even <laughs> when I can't knock out instead of reading what I've been doing I've so I've eliminated the books for the very reason that you're saying is I cannot stop thinking mm. there's this woman Kath Catherine Nikolai I think she does like these YouTube things called nothing but much happens which is like adult uh, bedtime stories hmm. not like x-rated bedtime <laughs> stories but like <laughs> but like you know and it's full of details so it's like this really great way to like uh, take your brain waves to their deep sleep state and she repeats the story twice cool. real slow and it's really nice should nice. we stop there no, let's do the other pillars. Let's, okay, do, uh, yes. let's do the mind. So what's your mind experiment right now? My mind experiment, Nick, which we started to unpack is moving meditations because mm. I'm really starting to dig into the idea that my whole life, I've been a fidgety, I need to move person and every, and reflecting on my experience in life about sitting, being taught to sit still, sit still, pay attention sit still, sit still, sit still. Mm. So that when I, and I have had really great benefits from seated meditations, but I'm, I, uh, Jerome, our, our foot nerd friend, Jerome actually brought this up in Slack about how he couldn't settle down until he moved. So now I'm, if I do a seated meditation, I have like a movement session beforehand, a really active one so I can settle in. And then I'm experimenting with um, messing around with the idea and making an argument for seated meditations being less important than movement meditations. Mm, I like that. That's a really good experiment. My mind experiment these days is trying to observe myself from uh, even more, like I'm using my med morning meditation session, my 20 minutes as an indicator of how busy my mind and my life is by how, 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 how much mm. stuff is going through. You know what I mean? Like I've released the aspect of fighting the stuff going through, but viewing the volume of things going through as an indicator of how much unprocessed stuff is in there. Because some days it's like, 
amazingly clear. And lately for the past week, it's been like, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot, like I look at it as the mind is the sky, thoughts are clouds. It's been like shitloads of clouds for the past mm -hmm. week. So like observing like, okay, what am I actually thinking of? So observing that there's a lot of clouds, but mm -hmm. then also going in and being like, okay, let's see a bit more detail about these clouds and see why, why they seem to be unresolved. Like, why am I thinking of these things right now? So um, yeah, that's, that's my experiment these days for the mind. Ooh, that's a good one. Okay. So community. Yeah. It's community. I'm starting, I'm going on a trip to visit my brother at West, but when I get back, I'm going to start jujitsu. I'm going to start like a, I haven't done a legitimate physical practice with other people that have had to go somewhere to do for a long time. So I'm going to learn how to strangle people, although I won't strangle people, but, no. with, <laughs> but it's, it'll be it's good to know if I ever need it. <laughs> it'll be a, it'll be a hug adjustment. There'll be a lot of hugging going on. Yes. Um, um, yeah. Community. Emily Gooding can strangle me, by the way. Like she's a, a, a next level jujitsu player. So we might even uh, find a play. Uh, we got the Heart of Hindenburg uh, project coming up. She's going to be leading that with me. And so we might find a place in Hindenburg that does jujitsu and do it together. So I can be radically humbled at how uh, tiny humans can make me feel scared for my life. So. I can't, I, I can't wait to meet y'all in person. That's going to be so fun. I want to take a jiu-jitsu class with you. Well, we'll do um, a community jiu-jitsu session when, when we get a bunch of nerds at Forest One. That'll be so fun. Um, okay, so community, one of the things that I know that you do too, because you've said it before, is that you make a conversation when it, you say something to the cashier when you go mm -hmm. to the grocery store. And I never told you this, but we have this in common that we talk to the people that we are you know, we ask how they're doing. And so for mm. community for me, so I don't, I haven't, we haven't owned a car in 10 years and we live in a city that you, that when we moved here, uh, our friends all took bets to say like you, there's no way you can live in Mobile without a car. And then they were like, we give those, we give those efforts three months before they buy a car. And then, um, and it's a city that's built on it for cars. Mm. So we've lived here now for almost three years. We've been 10 years total without a car living in cities where it's a car grid. So mm. that my grocery store is extraordinarily important in my community. And I get to know the, I get to know the cashiers pretty regularly with the masks right now. It's been more of a challenge to make, to, to interact. And I felt lethargic and trying to do so because you, so much of like how I interact is like through gesture and physical mm. play and they can't not just see. you all humans but most yeah, people don't realize that yeah because yeah so I <clears throat> usually see my good friends so I Nanita I mean some of these people that I come in contact with on a daily basis are closer than family members because I right. see them every day so I keep trying yeah. to nourish those relationships Amazing. I love that. I hate when people, why well, I can't see people's name tags. I'm so used to calling people there. Like I'll like, when they look at their screen, I'll like sneak a peek and find their name. So they don't even know that I look there. <laughs> I'm like, see you later, Jill. And she's like, <laughs> <laughs> she didn't see you sneak a peek. Like, yeah. And like my eyes are like, I, I don't have as high res vision as I used to. So I got to go like squint a little bit like, what the shit is this guy doing? Um, and it's, yeah. it's pretty funny with those name tags because now we have these plexiglass shields in place and I continuously want to like get around. <laughs> yeah, just rip it off. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, if, so, if I can't hear you, I'm taking this down. I'm trying to yeah. move the thing. Yeah. Before you know it, you're hugging them. They're like, how did yeah. this happen? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last one. Movement. What's your movement experiment right now? 
oh, my movement experiment is, oh, you better go first because I that's okay. I went blank. I told you mine the other day. Right now, I'm I have the house or slash office set to colder, oh, and that's so right. that's when so I get awesome. cold, is my prompt to be like, oh yeah, I should be moving right now, and it actually works really well, and it's like. It's a great little, you know, like no behaviors. One of the most profound things about behavior design is the realization that no behavior happens without a prompt. Most of the time we don't know what our prompts are. They just trigger us uh, mm -hmm. to do these habits, habitual behaviors. But like being cold now is a prompt for me to move. And I move way more because now that the place is colder, I'm like, yeah, I got to move more frequently. So it's like, a, that was a, it's a fun experiment. It's still going on. Sometimes I have to wear a toque inside because I'm like, if I'm sitting down for 20 minutes talking or doing a podcast, I'm like, I got to dress up now. <laughs> this place is cold. <laughs> Wait, so I told Matthew about this, this movement experiment. He wanted me to ask you, he's like, well, what is it? Because it was 65 because I've been given the updates about like what the temperature is in at your house. So is it 62 then? I don't know what, see, I'm, I'm terrible with these Fahrenheit. It's like 17 degrees. Oh, that's right. Okay. So I'll right check. Now. So, so yeah. okay. Um, so I realized that my movement experiment lately, I've been the same as I've had like where I wake up maybe between like one and one thirty. normally what I do AM and I can, and I'm wide awake with thoughts and uh, ideas. And I mm -hmm. used to just try to stay in bed and now my my experiment is to get up and go in the other room and then just move like do mm. a unwinding session some kind of uh, on the ground though and then um and then i just keep moving until i'm ready to settle down and fall asleep again cool that's a good one awesome well that runs out a um yeah these go way longer than what you think like i, I remember i just i recorded two um basically record a five-hour podcast with um matthew uh, from berlin from germany the foot nerd is it really 1 30 uh yeah it's 2 30 my time right now so um anyway for all of you listening thank you for tuning in if you made it to this point uh we <laughs> hope that that was a mixture of entertaining and it and informative and hopefully gives you some templates for you to be able to do your own citizen scientist experiments and maybe get to know myself and ruth a little bit better and like I said, we're going to continue doing these. Um, you know, it's a lot of people find it strange that, you know, we have a pretty deep work relationship. We've never even met in person yet, which always, you know, people, you know, and the first time I met James from Australia, we had already been working together for probably like a year and a half through like a fairly deep um, collaboration of like talking every week on the phone. And like, it's just funny how never before could I work with someone in a different country like when I tell my parents this, they're like, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> what are you talking about? Why are you doing this? Is this working? Like, are you, are you fooling yourself? <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty magical that we can just connect in a world that's mainly digital right now. And um, I, one thing I can tell you is everyone that I've worked with, the first time I met them in person, they were exactly as I thought they were, which like, I mean, with Zoom, it's, it's kind of a given, but it was also so fun to meet in person for the first time. Yeah. So, so nourishing. So I'm excited for the first time we get to yeah. meet physical reality. I know it seems so I'm pretty good at accepting the moment. So I haven't, I don't go there too often like that. That's a possibility, but man. Yeah. yeah. Really cool. cool. Well, thanks Thank for listening you. everyone. We will catch you. Uh, we'll probably do these every couple of weeks or maybe once a month to start and bump out the frequency as needed. But I'm kind of pulling back from the more regular podcast schedule every Wednesday. Um, 
other foot nerds are doing podcasts. So we'll fire those up on the audio project, but I look forward to these. It's always a treat chatting with Ruth and uh, thanks for listening folks. We'll catch you when we catch you. Ciao.